Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited. Hey there, gardening friends. Thank you for joining me again today. We are pretty much in mid-March now, and I'm in an awesome mood. I'm in really, really great spirits for a whole lot of reasons. Um, First of all, it's officially spring break for my kids. They are out of school this week, so no getting up early and rushing around getting them all off to school. Also... Mid-March means that we are officially past the last average frost date, and we are rolling right on in to daylight savings time, too. Also, March 20th is coming up, and that's the first day of spring. Spring equinox is when there is an equal amount of daylight and darkness. So from this point forward until the late summer, we're going to have more daylight than darkness. And I'm one of those people who are quite sensitive to the short days of winter. So it is just like a huge relief for me when the seasons shift. So needless to say, this is my absolute favorite time of year. But, you know, I'm also feeling really happy because we have started Texas wildflower season. And Everyone's favorites, including mine, the blue bonnets are here. Blue bonnets are the harbinger of spring in Central Texas, and they make me so happy because they are a gorgeous little flower, and I love them so much. They have such an amazing color, and it's not just that crazy intense blue that I love, but Blue bonnets also have a bit of just the most beautiful violet red in them too. And if you get up close to them, you'll see it. You'll see this gorgeous wine color in the center of each blossom. And to me, the sapphire blue with just a hint of that red violet just makes them even more vibrant and even more interesting. I love them. Well, you know, along with the blue bonnets, we are starting to see a lot of other wildflowers beginning to bloom. Orange paintbrush, purple, pink, and blue spiderworts, those are starting to pop up all over the place. I've been noticing lots of those sweet, delicate pink evening primroses. They're coming up. And, of course, Lots of different yellow wildflowers just popping up all over the place. These include Engelman's Daisy, Tixseed Coreopsis, Threadleaf Coreopsis, Huisatch Daisy, and all sorts of coneflowers, um, clasping coneflowers, prairie coneflowers, giant coneflowers. There are just tons and tons of yellow wildflowers, um, so many, and 
you know, a lot of them are really hard to tell apart. And that's not really all that surprising considering that they're pretty much all related. Most of the yellow wildflowers are in the aster family and it's a giant family. It's a really huge, huge family and it's got more than 20,000 different species in it. And a lot of them are yellow. Asters include chrysanthemums, daisies, and sunflowers. The name aster comes from the ancient Greek word for star. And all of these plants have a similar starburst shaped flower, kind of like a little firework looking flower. Some have thin needle-like petals. Um, some have heftier and wider petals, but all of them have like a flat, simple daisy shape where they have just a few rows of pellet, uh, petals that form around a center eye. The eyes can vary from species. Um, some may be big like sunflowers or they can be quite small, um, smaller than like a pencil eraser, but they're all pretty similar. Asters um, come in a whole bunch of different colors, the fall asters that bloom in the fall. Um, fall. Um, they're a nice light purple. Um, I think they also come in different shades of pink, um, hot pink, light pink. Chrysanthemums, they come in all sorts of colors, of course, pink, purple, white, brown, and of course, yellow. So by far, there are just tons and tons and tons of yellow spring blooming asters. And there are just so many yellow aster varieties that they really are hard to tell apart when you like see them in a field. Um, and I don't know if you've heard it, but sometimes they can be referred to as DYC asters or damned yellow composite asters. Former First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, you know, she gets a lot of credit for promoting Texas wildflowers. And, you know, it's well-deserved. I mean, she and the actress Helen Hayes founded the National Wildflower Center back in 1982. And they wanted to protect and preserve North America's native plants and natural landscapes. The National Wildlife Research Center was originally um, developed or built in East Austin, but um, it was moved in 1995 to its current location, which is in Southwest Austin. And then in 1997, they renamed it after Lady Bird Johnson. So now it's the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. And it is incredible, especially this time of year when the fields are full of blue bonnets. And, you know, they have little walking trails out there. And then they have these beautiful stone flower beds and demonstration gardens that they have. And you can get right up close to all kinds of flowers. And you don't have to worry about trespassing or rattlesnakes or fire ants when you go out there. It's a wonderful place. If you've never been there, it's great. It's pretty much wonderful any time of the year, even in the winter, because there's always something interesting. 
Plus, they have a absolutely fantastic children's garden. And it's an incredible place. You really should go. It's so inspirational. And if you go, I'm telling you, you're going to want to come home and redo your entire garden. Um, it's an incredible, incredible place. Um, and it's so crazy to me that, you know, we live right here in Central Texas and Austin is growing and growing and growing. And there is just this amazing 300 acre wildflower center that is just a few miles from downtown. And it's only like an hour from Taylor. Um, anyway, Ladybird was the driving force behind the Wildflower Center, but did you know that the Texas Department of Transportation has actually been working longer to conserve and preserve wildflowers? Texas was one of the very first states to implement a program to plant wildflower seeds along the roadsides um, in, like, in the right-of-way, and... Text, uh, text. Texas Department of Transportation. They have been planting wildflowers and other plants along the highways for 90 years now. Um, as you know, when they were first kind of like really getting into building roads in Texas, the highway system that we know it, as those roads were being cleared and built in Texas, workers noticed that wildflowers were among the first plants to return along the side of the road. Not only are wildflowers pretty, they're also really important in preventing soil erosion. Now, um, luckily, TxDOT kind of had the foresight and they saw the benefit of having all these natural plants there. Um, back in the 1930s, uh, TxDOT changed their road clearing policies so that they could preserve as many native trees and shrubs. Um, they were much more careful about clearing um, native trees and shrubs. You know, before they were just kind of clear cut everything. But then in the 30s, they were like, oh, yeah, we probably ought to leave some of these things. And in 1934, they changed their mowing practices. Um, they stopped mowing the roadside vegetation until after the spring wildflowers bloomed and went to seed. Now, in the uh, those very beginning years of their um, roadside and wildflower program, TxDOT, um, they did, you know, they actively collected the seeds so that they could keep them and they plant them year after year, and then they would also use those seeds to expand the program. But, you know, now they, they just buy the seeds. And now TxDOT sows about 30,000 pounds of wildflower seeds every year all across Texas. And it kind of adds up to about 800,000 miles of wildflower plantings all along the side of the road. Wildflowers start blooming in March and continue through May. And our wildflower season here in Central Texas peaks in April. Some years, you know, the wildflowers are really amazing. They're just tons and tons of flowers and they're just real dense. And then other years aren't so great. They're not nearly as spectacular. And there's 
a whole bunch of contributing factors that play into how abundant our wildflowers are, and it really varies from year to year. Spring wildflowers set their seeds after they've been pollinated, and they naturally drop once the plants die back. Now, out in the wild, out along the roadside, the seeds will spend all their time on the ground all summer long, um, waiting out the heat. And then by the time that it starts to cool off in the fall, um, that's when they start to germinate. And some of them, if conditions are pretty good, a lot of times you'll um, notice blue bonnets starting to um, form in the wintertime. And that's, that's perfectly normal. So um, fall is really when the spring wildflowers really start to think about getting to work and growing. All spring blooming wildflower seeds need to be sown in the fall so that they have plenty of time to get ready for germinating and growing and blossoming by springtime. If we have good rainfall over the fall and winter, and if the temperatures aren't too crazy, like we don't get a whole bunch of freezes or late freezes, we and we also need to start get, having nice sunshine as the days warm up, then we stand a really good chance of getting lots and lots of wildflowers, um, a really abundant display in the, in the spring. Now, the past couple of years have been kind of unremarkable for the wildflowers, and that's due mostly in part to drought and drier than usual winters, plus having late freezes like we did in February. But 2023 is slated to be a pretty good year for our wildflowers. The Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center is forecasting um, a really nice season this year because of the decent amount of rainfall last late last year, plus the warmer temperatures that we got in January and February this year. Now, I know that you know, we did have that awful ice in February and it totally wrecked all of our trees, but it wasn't a killing freeze. It wasn't a cold extended freeze. It did plenty of damage, but really within a day or so it started melting and it quickly melted and all of that moisture was really great for the wildflowers. So, we're thinking wildflowers this spring are expected to be above average this year and pretty lush. Um, if we get some extra spring rainfall, um, we could get an extended wildflower season where those late blooming flowers, like the blanket flowers, they continue to bloom into early summer. And I really hope so because Texas wildflowers are just so lovely. Early spring in Central Texas is my favorite time of the year, and it's the perfect time to plant summer favorites like beans, corn, cucumbers, and squash, all from seed. 
True Leaf Market has been selling heirloom and organic garden seeds since 1974. They offer a huge selection of seeds of all kinds, veggies, herbs, flowers, grains, cover crops, specialty seeds, and even sprouting and microgreen seeds. Whether you need just a small packet with a few seeds or several pounds, True Leaf Market offers sizes for everyone, from the home gardener to professional growers. Order online at trueleafmarket.com. Be sure to use promo code PLOWHOSE10 and take 10% off your order at trueleafmarket.com. On KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you will go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music all coming out of our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. Head over to Amazon or Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you get your shows and be sure to subscribe to the Plan Host Podcast if you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want. Download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. This is going to help others organically find the show. Plus, downloading Plan Host episodes provides me with valuable statistics. Okay, well, you know, here in my yard, I have a pretty decent patch of blue bonnets. They're not really as thick as they have been in the past. Um, I had a nice dense patch of blue bonnets, I don't know, maybe like 12, 13 years ago. Um, This year it seems okay. Um, I don't know if it's early, but I don't know, it just doesn't seem as, as great as it has been in the past. You know, I I know I didn't plant my seeds until pretty close to Thanksgiving. And initially I thought maybe that's why they weren't, they aren't looking as great um, because I got them in late. But you know what? I've got a lot of other interesting plants that have come up alongside the blue bonnets. Um, I'm not really sure what all of them are, honestly. I've not had a chance to uh, take the time to figure that out, but there's one that um, that is super, super cute. It's really low growing like a ground cover, and it's putting out just thousands of these teeny tiny little lavender star-shaped flowers. Um, definitely not an aster. Um, it's some sort of herb, I think, like botanical herb, uh, not like a kitchen or culinary herb. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, um, but it's really nice. I like that it it is small and it's acting like a ground cover, and there's a lot of them. And honestly, I think the lawn looks so nice with these little tiny purple stars kind of sprinkled all across that section of the yard. I really like them. And, you know, while I was out there kind of admiring those little flowers and checking on the blue bonnets, um, one day late last week, I noticed a new flower out there and it had purple flowers and it like popped up like straight out of the ground. 
I mean, I know this is exactly how plants grow. I mean, they grow right out of the ground, but these are different. They're kind of weird. Um, they look familiar. They look a bit like a salvia or um, a snapdragon, but kind of on a small scale. Um, the flowers are small and, and trumpety looking, and they kind of form all the way around the stem. Um, the whole plant, stem and flowers, is only like four inches tall. But the strange thing about this plant is that it doesn't have any leaves at all. And the whole thing is pale. The stems are pale, like kind of a brownish gray color. And what it really looks like is it looks like somebody came through and just like jammed these short flower stems right into the ground. It looks like they're planted, not where they sprouted up from, from the bottom. It's really weird looking. It's really unusual. Um, so I like kind of like pushed back the grass and looked really closely at them. And for sure, there are absolutely no leaves or any green parts to this plant. And if I didn't know better, um, I might have thought that they were fake because the stems are bare and they have flowers on top. And they, they just look poked into the grass. It's so weird. So I, you know, I grabbed my phone and I took some pictures and then I posted them on one of my favorite Texas native plant groups that um, I'm on on Facebook. Um, and, you know, shortly after, um, someone replied that it looked like broom rape. And then a couple of other people agreed that it was broom rape. And one of them pointed out that it's a non-native invasive plant. And then they added a link to the Texas Native or Texas Invasive Species Institute. And I was like, oh man, because it's a really cool and unusual looking plant. And I was excited to find it out there with the blue bonnets. I was excited until I read about them. They, um, there are like 150 different varieties of broom rape. They grow pretty much all over the world. They come in different sizes and, you know, different varieties can be yellow or white or have purple flowers, but they don't have leaves. They have small triangular scales along the stems. And then those stems are that weird pale brownish gray color. And they're like that because broom rape doesn't contain green chlorophyll. So they are unable to make their own food through photosynthesis. Instead, they get their food from other plants because they're parasitic, they're parasites. Mistletoe is probably the most visible and the most notorious parasitic plant that we have in central Texas. Mistletoe attaches to trees and it siphons off nutrients and water. Mistletoe spreads mainly by birds who eat the berries and then they poop their seeds out. And since birds hang out in trees, um, when their mistletoe seed poop 
um, lands and sticks on branches, that's when the seeds um, will germinate and they root right into the branches where they suck out water and nutrients straight from the tree. Mistletoe is actually semi-parasitic. It does contain chlorophyll and it stays green and it produces some food through photosynthesis when the trees go dormant in the winter. Broom rape, on the other hand, is completely dependent on host plants for food because they don't contain any chlorophyll and they cannot photosynthesize. Instead of attaching to trees like mistletoe, broom rape seeds germinate in the soil, but conditions have to be just right for broom rape to germinate and Actually, the seeds can survive in soil for many, many years until conditions are just perfect for them. Broom rape seeds don't germinate until they are stimulated by certain compounds called strigolactones. These are hormones that are produced by plants um, and they help control plant growth. When strigolactones are released into the soil, they send out a signal letting um, beneficial microbes like fungi um, know that the plant's there and the microbes and the plant, they have like this symbiotic food web that's all throughout the soil. But these strigolactones, these signals, they also trigger parasites like broom rape seeds to start to grow. Not all strigolactones trigger broom rape seeds, just certain plants, just their host plants. And the most common host plants for broom rape are members of the nightshade and the legume families. And bluebonnets are legumes. And this explains why I have broom rape coming up in my bluebonnet patch. So just beneath the soil, these blue bonnets, the host plants are sending out strigolactone hormones and the messages are being sent for the beneficial microbes, letting them know that the plant's there and it's growing. Let's set up this food web in the soil. But then they're also stimulating any latent broom rape seeds. When they germinate the broom rape, attaches to the roots of the host plant. They attach to my blue bonnets and they start consuming water and nutrients from the host. They attach and grow, um, they attach at the root and then they grow up through the soil next to the host plant. So I am really beginning to believe that my blue bonnets aren't looking as nice as they should this year because that broom rape is there just stealing nutrients and water. Now, I did a little more internet research and I learned that the particular kind of broom rape that is growing in my blue bonnet patch, it's really, it's not quite as bad as other varieties. Um, from what I learned, the yellow kind seems to be a lot worse, especially if they show up in agricultural fields where they can just completely ruin valuable crops by draining their host plants of nutrients. 
Broom rape attaches to several types of host plants, but their favorites are legumes and nightshades. Legumes are really you know, in that family are peas and beans, and the nightshade crops include tomatoes, eggplants, and potatoes. Now, out in the front yard, like where I found the broom rape, it's not ideal, but it's not alarming. I love my blue bonnets, but I'm not growing them as a crop. And I'd probably be more concerned if they were, if I had broom rape out in my backyard, out with the garden beds where I grow my tomatoes and beans. So another kind of down thing about broom rape is that it's a little tricky to control because you can't just pull them up out of the ground because they're attached to the host. So if you rip up the broom rape, you're gonna be ripping it off of the host plant and that will cause damage to the host. Herbicides, both natural and synthetic varieties, will kill broom rape, but since they are growing into the host underground, Treating them with herbicide will also kill the host plant. And even if you are super, super careful and you do not get any herbicide on the upper parts of the host plant, you know, if like if you're out there squirting um, your herbicide, it's just straight, you think you're only spraying it on the broom rape? Nope. It will also kill the host plant because they are attached underground. So they will, broom rape will absorb that herbicide all the way down to the root. And since the root is attached to the root of the host plant, it's going to kill the host plant too. So I think the best way for me to try to control the broom rape so I'm not overrun with it in a couple of years, um, I think I'm going to have to get out there and clip each one of them at the base. And I hope I can get it all done before they get pollinated and set seed because they have itty bitty tiny seeds and there are a whole lot of them. They are able to produce a whole lot of seeds. And if they set seed, I'm going to have more next year. So, you know, I'm glad I don't live next to a farm. Like my neighbor is not um, a farmer and I'm glad I don't have a crop that I plan on selling because I can totally see how broom rape would be really bad and devastating for crops. And I think that's all unfortunate because broom rape is a pretty cool looking plant, but it's gotta go. Broom rape isn't the only freeloading spring flower. Orange paintbrushes are also parasitic plants. Paintbrushes, they have true leaves that contain plenty of chlorophyll, but it selectively photosynthesizes just a portion of its own food. Paintbrushes are semi-parasitic like mistletoe. Orange paintbrush seeds can germinate on their own without the strigolactone hormones from a host plant but once they germinate and begin to grow, the paintbrushes 
will spread their roots into the soil until they touch the roots of other plants like blue bonnets. Then the paintbrush roots will actually penetrate the roots of the host plant and start siphoning off food from the host. They just show up and skim nutrients from other plants and they don't really give anything back to the host. So it's not a symbiotic relationship. It's definitely a parasitic relationship. It doesn't rob other plants of nutrients enough to harm or kill them like broom rape. Paintbrushes might be freeloaders. They are, but they're pretty. So they've got that going for them. They really like blue bonnets as their host plants. And that's why you see them growing together. And I'm kind of glad that they have this parasitic relationship because I love blue and orange together. And I think it's just really stunning out on the roadside to see the blue, blue bonnets and the orange paintbrushes. Paintbrushes are members of the Snapdragon family. They, the really colorful parts of the plant, they aren't actually flowers. The bright orange parts are bracts, um, not flower petals. Bracts are leaf-like structures that surround the flower. Paintbrush flowers are inconspicuous. They're small, they have white and pale green petals, but then they're surrounded like a cup by those orange bracts. Paintbrushes um, are very similar in a way to poinsettias and bougainvillea. Um, they have evolved to develop bright and colorful bracts as a way to attract pollinators to those insignificant little flowers that all of those plants have. Now, if you want to add um, orange paintbrush to your landscape, you're not going to find them really for sale at nurseries because they don't like to be transplanted. So if you want to add them, you can try to plant um, them from seed, um, but you have to do that in the fall. Now, just heads up, um, even though they're very plentiful out um, along the roadside, everything I read is that they're pretty difficult to cultivate and that only 40% of the seeds will actually germinate. But once they get established and they are siphoning off nutrients from a host plant, um, they'll be a really nice and spectacular addition to your landscape. Okay, so another thing about mid-March is, you know, it makes me really happy because we can plant lots and lots and lots of things in our gardens right now, in our vegetable gardens. We can plant, we can transplant tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers. So get those um, started seedlings in the ground. We can also direct sow a lot of things, beans, beets, cantaloupe, chard, cucumbers. We can get cool season greens and warm season greens planted, pumpkins, radishes, summer and winter squash. We can plant turnips and we can start watermelons to transplant later in the month when it's a little bit warmer. 
Also, if you haven't planted any fruit trees, you want to go and add some to your landscape. Fruit trees are awesome. And this is the time of year to do it. Local independent nurseries have the best selection of fruit trees and nut trees that are going to grow the best for us. Big box stores kind of hit or miss on what they get in local independent nurseries are going to do you right. They're going to have varieties that are going to grow for us here in our soil type, in our climate with the right amount of chill hours. So go visit your local nurseries. You might be able to still get some bare root trees, um, but you really, really need to hurry and get those planted. Um, once bare root trees start to get leaves, the nurseries, they, they have to start potting them up. Um, you know, once they start breaking dormancy, they put them in a pot so that they can get a root, uh, their roots will start to grow and they get established. And once they get potted, you're going to pay more. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me again today. I hope that you are super busy outside, taking advantage of this nice weather and enjoying this time of year. I'm really, really excited and hope you are too. So have a great week and I hope you go plant some really cool stuff. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.